0: This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann. 40% of all insect species have declined globally in recent decades, and a third of those are considered endangered. The impacts that wild insects have on our lives are incalculable, while the benefits to humanity of domesticated honeybees is measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars annually. With this decline in insect populations, including the bees that pollinate our food, What can we do? Searching for answers and to understand what was leading to a bee decline, several years ago I reached out to Dr. Dennis Van Engelsdorp, a research scientist and associate professor of entomology at the University of Maryland and the former chief apiarist for Pennsylvania, to find out more. In this newly edited and remastered conversation, Dennis shares what he's learned investigating bee die-offs ever since Dave Hackenberg, a Pennsylvania beekeeper, first reported large colony losses in 2006, which led to the coining of the term and research into the condition of colony collapse disorder. During this conversation, Dennis also talks about the ongoing loss of bee colonies in the United States and elsewhere, which continue even now, years after this conversation was recorded, and the role of bees as pollinators in our food supply, and what we can do to support honeybees and native pollinators. Enjoy this conversation with Dennis, and I'll join you again after.
1: They have a saying in the, in the bee world, once you're stung, it's in your blood and you know you're going to be a beekeeper forever. And that certainly happened to me actually while I was doing my undergraduate degree. I was studying horticulture, international agriculture, and I took a beekeeping course as an elective and I really fell in love. And so I did a master's in beekeeping and I think I'd be a beekeeper if it wasn't for the fact that I'm not very mechanical. And so it's always, if you're going to be a commercial beekeeper, you want to be able to build boxes and build things and I'm much better with statistics than I am with a hammer. And so the researching bees really became uh, an avenue. Really also I'm interested in beekeepers and and how beekeepers work and they're nearly as interesting as bees are in themselves. So I've been very fortunate that I can pursue a job where I do a lot of extension work and work a lot with beekeepers but I also work with honeybees which are very fascinating on their own right. The whole story of colony collapse disorder is an interesting one and it, I think it's important to realize that since 1945, we had about 5 million colonies in the country and now we have about 2.5 million colonies in the country. So there's been this steady decline in honeybees for well over 60 years. That's troubling but it really didn't catch the imagination of people until CCD or colony collapsed hit the news. And what happened there was uh, a very large beekeeper in Pennsylvania, Dave Hackenberg, he was bragging about how good his bees were. He described them as boiling over. And as he does every year, he moved his bees down from Pennsylvania to Florida, and a month later went to visit them. And he describes it as going into a ghost town. He says he got on his hands and knees looking for bees. He didn't see bees anywhere. They weren't at the entrance. There weren't dead bees in the apiary. They just weren't to be seen. When all was said and done, he had lost 2,000 of his 3,000 colonies in a matter of weeks. And it was clear that this was happening to other beekeepers in Florida and in California. And so that's when a group of us got together and we decided to start sampling bees from these operations. And at first, we really thought this was varroa mite. And varroa mite certainly is the number one problem beekeepers are facing. These very large mites, they're vampire mites, if you like, they're very large. I mean, it's like a dinner plate feeding on you, so very large. And, and when they spit in order to suck the blood of the bees, they actually introduce viruses to the bees. And these are killing lots of bees. And I was convinced when he called that it was a varroa mite problem. But we took samples. We asked him to send up bee colonies in his next truckload up, and, and we took samples from them. And we actually found no varroa mite in these colonies or very little growth. They couldn't explain loss and it became very clear that this problem was happening in lots of different places at very high levels and so that's where CCD came and we had a committee, a group of us got together to describe this condition and we defined colony collapse disorder as colonies that died from very specific set of symptoms. Colonies died very quickly as evidenced by the fact that you would see lots of young bees but not enough adult bees to cover them, which is very unusual because bees don't abandon their young. And that was clearly what was happening here. Where if there were bees left in the colony, they were young and the queen was there. The queen was one of the last to leave. We didn't find dead bees in the hive or in the apiary. And there was a delay in robbing. Usually when a colony dies, it leaves food supplies behind and other bee colonies, bees and other bee colonies will come in and steal that honey. And that wasn't happening in these situations. So that's where CCD, sort of that whole story of CCD happened. I want to say that since then, we find it much more difficult to find cases of colony collapse disorder every winter, but we're finding that the same number of colonies on average are dying every winter. And so that's made this story much more complicated because they're not dying with the same symptoms. So we can't call these colonies dying CCD colonies or colony collapse disorder colonies But we're still losing one in every three colonies go into the winter every year. And that's an astronomical number. I can't imagine any other agricultural group losing that many colonies and not having the National Guard call them. Can you imagine if if one third of all the cows died every winter? That would just wreak havoc. I think the part of the problem is the fact that beekeepers are very good at replacing losses. And so if you have a colony that's died and you have a colony that's alive, you can split the living colony in half, buy a queen, and you can suddenly have two colonies again in a couple of months if you feed them and nurture them along. The problem with that scenario is that it's really expensive. It's very expensive in terms of lost income, increased labor, and increased inputs. And that's where our real concern is, I think, as a research community, is that there are these relatively very few large commercial beekeepers in the country, maybe 800 to 1,000 of them. Managing 90 to 95% of the colonies in the country, and these are the beekeepers who move colonies across the country to pollinate our fruits and vegetables. And if these guys go out of business, they're very difficult to replace. And we're worried that with these high levels of sustained 30% losses every winter, we've lost a couple of them, we're probably going to lose some more. And if this keeps happening, we just, it won't only just affect those families, those beekeepers moving their colonies around the country, it's going to affect the blueberry producer in Maine, the cranberry producer in Massachusetts, apple producer in Pennsylvania, the cucumber producer in New Jersey, and of course the almond producer in California. All of these different farmers rely on that same beekeeper to move his or her colonies around to pollinate those different crops.
2: I've heard figures anywhere from 25 to almost 50% of the fruits and vegetables that we eat are related to the pollination of bees?
1: Yeah. So it depends a little bit on how you count but I think it's safe to say that about one in three bites of food we eat are directly and indirectly pollinated by honeybees. There are some crops that are clearly pollinated directly like apples. We wouldn't have apples if we didn't have honeybees or some insect pollinators and honeybees are the best, most efficient apple pollinators. There are other crops like blueberries where honeybees are simply the most convenient pollinators. The fruit set is much better if they were visited by bumblebees but you can't bring enough bumblebees into the blueberry orchards or the blueberry errands for a short period of time that they're flowering and take them out before they have to start spraying. And so what you need is you need this movable pollination force and so that's where honeybees are important. They're also important for seed production and that's also part of this one-third. So for instance, A lot of dairy cattle are fed alfalfa and where that alfalfa seed comes from are alfalfa feeds in in the Midwest for alfalfa seed production which use honeybees to set that seed.
2: The honeybees provide a large number of services that just wouldn't be possible without them.
1: Well, that's right. And I think it's really important to remember that uh, in North America, honeybees have been introduced over here. So we brought over here with the Europeans. And so they're not native, but neither are a lot of the crops we grow. So for instance, apples and almonds are old world crops that were brought over. But there are thousands of species of native bees. So a lot of bumblebees, a lot of beautiful little solitary and stingless bees that also pollinate the different crops that we have here, like squash, the sunflowers. They are much more efficient at those crops. In fact, what they find, though, is that in the presence of both honeybees and native bees, that the fruit set is better and the quality of the food, the fruit is better too. So it's not a competitive thing. I think having room for both are important. And there's a very important movement in agricultural circles where they're trying to reintroduce the hedgerow, which acts as habitat and a reservoir for these native bees that usually live solitary lives. So it's not like they're in colonies that can get trucked around. They're drilling holes in wood or they're pouring into the soil and sand as nesting sites to provide pollination services. And sometimes that pollination service is for a very specific plant at a very specific time. So you have some species that are only out for a couple of weeks in association with a certain flowering plant. So sometimes these are very close evolutionary relationships. And some really good studies out of Europe that showed in England and the Netherlands that if you see declines in some of these solitary bees that have evolved these very specific relationships with certain plant plants, not only are you seeing a loss in those bees, but you're also seeing a loss in the plants that rely on them for pollination.
2: So the loss of one is reflected in the loss of the other.
1: That's right. Honeybees and pollinator species in general are the keystone species. They're the species that holds the system together. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful evolutionary stories is the one between pollinators and flowering plants. You know, often we think about evolution as being this competition, the strongest survive. Well, between bees and flowering plants, it was cooperation. Here we have these insects that have become true vegetarians. They only eat plant protein. Flowers provide copious amounts of this plant protein in the form of pollen. They also produce nectar. And these are rewards to the bees to come over and visit this flower and take this pollen to another flower so that the plants can essentially cross-fertilize and mate. And so here we have these flowers, which are in many ways the first form of advertisement, these big, gaudy, colorful fluorescences that smell to attract the bees. They're really trying to reach out to the bees and saying, come over here, come over here, I've got lots of food for you. And the process, not only are you getting fed and can bring this food home, but you can also fertilize as you're doing it. And so it's one of the most beautiful, I think, evolutionary dances out there. Without these pollinated insects, we wouldn't have flowering plants. And uh, without flowering plants, we wouldn't have these bees and pollinators.
2: There's an imperative there then to both provide habitat for the bees as well as homes and everything else that they need so that we can continue to propagate many of these plants that are valuable to us and to support the pollinators in turn. It's an interesting cycle between the two.
1: That's right and it's a complicated cycle and I think that that's where if we want to go back and talk a little bit about what's causing declines of bees, when we first came across the CCD we thought we would have a simple answer. You know, We thought well maybe it's a new disease, maybe it's a, either a new virus got introduced or a new variation of a virus, you know how the flu, every year we have the flu and but there's slightly different variants of it that can cause problems. Or we thought maybe it was a pesticide and that could be a pesticide that the beekeepers applied to control mite, or a pesticide that the farmers apply and the bees are bringing back. Or we thought it could be some other environmental stress, maybe there was bottlenecking in the genetic pool, maybe the bees were very poorly nourished and these were the problems. And so when we took samples from healthy and CCD colonies and we compared them, we actually didn't find very many differences between CCD bees and the healthy bees, except in a couple of important ways. CCD bees had by far the most number of pathogens. Both populations had about the same number of pathogen exposures, but the CCD colony sort of had every disease going. So CCD bees were really, really sick. And we, in fact, think that it was viral collapse or virus-mediated collapse that's responsible for the symptom of the rapid decline of adult bees. We think that bees, like other social insects, have evolved something called altruistic suicide. Somehow they know they're sick. And so when they know they're sick, they want to fly away from the hive and die away from the hive in an attempt to prevent their nest mates from getting sick too. I'm saying that as if the bees are really consciously thinking about that. And of course, that's anthropomorphizing it. That's not really what happens. But I think that explains the process we think is going on. We see this also in termites, for instance. Some termites, when they get a fungal infection, will leave the nest, tapping on the ground in a certain way, which is called the leper's walk. And they're telling other termites, don't touch me. I'm sick. You don't want to come and get that sickness. And so we think this explains that rapid loss. But it doesn't explain why the bees are as sick as they are. The other sort of inconvenient finding from the CCDD study was that the healthy bees consistently had more pesticides than the bees, And I think we're having trouble explaining that. It could be that the beekeepers who had the healthy colonies were much more aggressive at controlling varroa mite. It could be that the bees in the healthy colonies had been selected for over time to be more resistant to pesticides. And so that's why we found more pesticides in those colonies. Sort of we don't find CCD and we're still seeing these losses. We're sort of building this case that it isn't a single factor that what we're seeing out there different for different beekeepers. And it's different on different years and it's a combination of factors. And so what we're seeing is pathogens playing a role pesticides playing a role and poor nutrition playing a role. And so this is our leading hypothesis and we've got evidence for all of them. Clearly, we know that varroa mites can kill a lot of colonies and and certainly beekeepers, the number one thing a beekeeper can do to keep colonies alive is to make sure that they're treating varroa mites aggressively. and, And there's lots of different ways of doing that, including some organic options. We also know that the bees are not getting well-nourished. The habitat that they once had isn't available to them anymore. So if we look at the Midwest, if we look at North Dakota and South Dakota, there used to be a lot of CRP land, conservation reserve um, land, that was left fallow and it would grow a whole bunch of different crops, including the flowering plants that the bees could forage in. But with the price of corn and soybean going up, we've seen that a lot of that land is now getting plowed under and planted with corn and soybean which means that there's less and less for the bees to eat. And so we really do think that the bees have lost a lot of foraging potential out in in these environments. And so this means that they're being less well-nourished and that they're also having to eat and rely on agricultural crops for most of their protein and nectar and, and inadvertently and the pesticides. But of course, pesticides coming into the colonies is also a big concern. So the big theory is then that it's a combination of these factors. And and the study we just released recently sort of helped support this theory that it's multiple factors. And so in this study, what we did was we placed colonies in different agricultural settings and collected the pollen off the bees (laughs) as they flew back to the colony. And bees, when they fly away from the colony, build up an electric static charge. And so when they land on the flower, pollen jumps on them, and then they're able to rake that pollen back and store it and press it on their hind legs in what's called a, in a pollen basket. And so there's this pollen pellet on their back legs that they bring back to the colony and they put in a cell and, and add enzymes to help start digestion and then the nurse bees or the youngest bees will eat that and then make a, a milk that has a lot of protein that, that they will feed young. But what we can do is we can put a trap in front of that colony and knock those pollen pellets off and then collect those pollen pellets and that's what we did in these different crops. And Then we sent that pollen off to get analyzed for pesticides and we found a lot of pesticides. As many as 21 different pesticides coming into one colony, on average 9 different pesticides. In some cases, we found levels of pesticides well above the LD50 rate so that's the lethal dose for 50% of the population. So no doubt there were bees that died in the field when they were collecting this pollen because it was very high levels. And then what we did was we fed some of that pollen to newly emerged bees and then exposed them to fungal infection that's very common to bees called nocema. And a little while later, we would then count how many of those bees eventually got this fungal infection. And what we found, which really surprised, well, we found two things. The first thing didn't surprise us and that was we found a lot of miticides. These treatments beekeepers apply to their colonies to control mites. we found that in the pollen and in fact when the bees that ate this pollen with these miticides in it were much more likely to get infected than if they ate pollen without miticides in it and we've known that for a long time. Beekeepers know that treating chemicals in their colonies is a lot like chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is not good for anyone. It's just much better than cancer. And so we know that the colonies are going to die if you don't control varolamite, but the option is you have to usually treat with something that's going to have a detrimental effect on the colony. And so we know that these chemicals hurt these immune systems. The thing that really surprised us though was the effect of fungicides, particularly a very common fungicide called clothalamil. And so this is not considered toxic to bees at all. Fungicides are usually thought of as very safe for bees. I mean, you can spray fungicide on the bee and it flies happily home. But what we found was that bees that ate pollen that had this were two or more times likely to come down with infection than if they hadn't been exposed. And so this is evidence of this synergistic effect, this sublethal effect that the fungicide not killing the bees, but an exposure to the fungicide is making them much more susceptible to disease. It's an important finding. It's important in the fact that When you look at the regulations, regulations are pretty clear in the fact that you're not allowed to spray a flowering plant with an insecticide that will kill that pollinator. And so when plants are in flower, generally, farmers don't spray anything but fungicides because fungicides are deemed safe. This suggests that we have to rethink how we label fungicides for application because we have to start thinking about how to protect the bees. But we also give the tool that beekeepers can use to work with farmers and say, hey, I'm renting you these bees, I know you're not interested in killing these bees, so please delay the treatment of fungicides until I get the bees out of here. And so it gives an actionable point to this story. So a very surprising study and the weakness of that study was it wasn't designed to look at the nutritional aspect. So for instance, we only found some types of pesticides on apples and we know apple pollen is very good for bees and so it could be... That nutrition plays an important role here too. If we had highly nutritious food, maybe the bees are better able to resist nocema and counterbalance any negative effects of the pesticides. And we hope to follow up on that work in the future. So I guess just to summarize, our current thinking is that it's multiple things coming together. Another example of that is like when there's a drought year, if you have a drought year, does that change the nutritional profile of the pollen and does it concentrate pesticides in the hives? And so you can imagine that different factors can come in together to make it more or less likely that bees will come down with disease.
2: So this isn't like the bees are getting something that completely compromises them, that makes them really sick. It's just a lot of little things are dinging at the health of the colonies. And then as they start to die off, the bees are taking an action to protect the rest of the hive. But in that process, is causing an even bigger loss to the hive.
1: Well, that's right. So I want to emphasize that colony collapse disorder, we're not seeing it anymore. We're seeing a slow dwindle and that's probably because we're not seeing mortality necessarily. That's virus-mediated. It's probably being mediated by some other illnesses that don't cause that symptom or invoke that response. But I think you're right that it's like something's weakening their immune system like AIDS, except we have lots of different things that can weaken their immune system. So maybe the the, the closer analogy it's like heart disease. Well, what causes heart disease if you don't eat well, certain toxic exposures, lack of exercise, genetic predisposition, one or a combination of those factors. And that's probably just the same with the bees. It's one or a combination of factors that predisposes them to disease which might be the sort of final straw that takes them up.
2: Just so that I can make sure that I understand the language of this then is that you're not seeing CCD as much because that is a clear set of symptoms that you defined for that disorder but you're still seeing a die-off of the bees as a result of the other mix of environmental, nutritional and other factors.
1: I'll just be a little bit more specific, we're not seeing the symptoms of CCD anymore so we can't call it CCD but we're still losing the same number of colonies every winter. We're not sure what causes those losses. And we're thinking that it's a combination of factors working together. And we think that that's both variable in time and space. And so some beekeepers are suffering this combination and, this, and another beekeeper might be suffering these combinations. But collectively, I think what it's saying is that the environment is not nearly as friendly to bees anymore. And it's much more difficult to keep them alive.
2: One of the things that I'm seeing a lot is the impact of neonicotinoid pesticides potentially on bees, and I was wondering if you can speak to that at all, whether you've done some research on it, or you can speak comfortably about some of the papers that have been written on this. So neonics are
1: a group of insecticides, because they're designed to kill insects, that were based on nicotine in tobacco plants. And the advantage of these pesticides, if you like, is the fact that you can use very small amounts of them, and you can either... Paint them on the seed or you can drop a little bit in the soil and the plants will suck up this insecticide and it will go into their leaf tissue and into their other plant tissue and if an insect comes and nibbles on that leaf, they'll get exposed to this insecticide and die. So this is called a systemic pesticide or insecticide. Now, plants have evolved all sorts of toxic components to kill off insects or discourage insects from eating them. So you think of celery and celery has lots of toxic chemicals that discourage other insects from eating it. But they've all these plants that produce these toxins have evolved filters to make sure that these toxins don't go into the pollen and nectar because they don't want to discourage pollinators. The problem with neonics, even though I think they were designed with the best intentions because they reduce how many times the farmer has to apply chemicals, they reduce certainly how much chemical has to be applied into the environment. It's very specific to that plant, so there's less problems with runoff. They have a lot of advantages. In theory, the problem is is that these chemicals are getting in at low levels into the pollen and nectar, and the bees are bringing them home. And these are very highly toxic products. And we're seeing that while often the the levels in the pollen and nectar aren't sufficiently high to kill the bees outright, there's a lot of papers that show sublethal effects. So I know that there's work that I cooperated on. That showed the bees were more likely to come down with Nosema infection, which we talked about earlier. We also know that there's work that it affects their memory and their ability to find their way home. So there's a lot of sublethal effects that have been measured. What has yet to be done, though, is to show colony-level effects, that we can see a detrimental effect on the colony. And I think that that work still needs to be done. Now. In Europe, they have a different sort of criteria for how they evaluate pesticide safety. So there they have the precautionary principle. That means if we can't say that there's no risk, then they might ban the product and wait for more research. And so starting January of next year, there's going to be a ban on the neonics. The real concern is, is, well, what's going to replace those neonics? And there's, I think, some discussion that needs to be had because a lot of these replacement products might be more detrimental to colony health than the actual neonics are. The fact is that 50, 20, 15 years ago, there were a lot of colonies dying from insecticide spray. The thing is is that we knew they were insecticide-killed colonies because we found a whole bunch of dead bees at the colony, and that's not happening with sublethal effects like with neonics. And so I think that certainly neonics need more attention. However, I think that this last study we talked about earlier also suggests that we need to look at a host of different products, including fungicides, which also is very widely used and very common and its role too. So I I think to make sure that we're keeping our conversation broad.
2: As much as we may want to focus on these particular insecticides or pesticides because it gives a kind of clarity to where the issue may be arising that it's kind of a false path to walk down because there are these other problems that have to be investigated That it has to be kept general.
1: Right you would find a lot of people who disagree with me very vehemently there like there are certainly beekeepers and there's certainly some scientists who really think the problem is only neonics and certainly there have been problems when planting corn for instance because corn gets painted with the neonics So when they drill that corn in dry soil, when they're planting that corn, a dust cloud comes up. And that dust cloud, if it lands on flowering plants and bees visit it, those bees die from neonic poisoning. And so there are clear cases of neonic poisoning because of seed treatment and how they plant the seeds that needs to get addressed. It's the sublethal effects that I think some people still question. And I certainly think that it needs to be looked at, but there's a lot of other things that need to get looked at as well. I think there would be a lot
2: of people who don't agree with me. To expand on that thought for just a second is that even if we were to ban the neonic tomorrow, from your research, that's not going to stop the bee die off, that there are still these other factors that will will need to be investigated.
1: That's right. And I also don't think even the Europeans think that banning neonics are going to stop the die off right away, in part because they think there's residues in the soil, so it may take a long time for that neonic to go away. And certainly there are lots of other things killing bees. I certainly would be very surprised if suddenly all our problems went away with the banning of neonics. I think actually there would probably be more problems with pesticide kills. They would just be direct in the media.
2: Because of changing away from the neonics to something else. Right. It sounds in some ways that this reliance on agricultural chemicals continue to create these different issues that we continually adjust for within... Agriculture. Yeah, I
1: mean, certainly, there are always other consequences to everything we do. That's very true. And it's hard to see how we can feed the world without using some of these technologies. But at the same time, I think it's a very legitimate question is, well, why is it that nearly all the corn in the country is treated with these neonics? Is that really necessary? And so I think some conversation about making sure that we're being wise about things is warranted. And so I don't know that just banning things necessarily always works. I think it's people just using things more intelligently and I think that that's perhaps a more creative solution and the better long-term solution but of course it's a much more complicated solution so it's much more difficult to implement. I mean, at the same time, we can look at nutrition and why is it that we think the green lawn is this beautiful status symbol, you know, that's sort of archaic. I mean. That's based on the times that we had kings and queens. Really, these big green lawns are just green deserts. They support nothing but the grass. And so why is it that we spend all these millions of dollars on herbicides to keep what we call weed free? Weeds are really what we mean when we say weeds are flowering plants. And so aren't meadows much more interesting than green lawns? And shouldn't that be the status symbol? Like Maybe we need a cultural revolution in, in terms of that. I went to a really interesting talk, and it was a guy from Delaware, and he was saying that if every one of us took 10% of our backyard and made it into a natural habitat with pollinator plants and native trees and native plants, that would be the equivalent of adding together three of the largest national parks in the country together, adding that to our ecosystem. So I think that there's a lot of things we can do to help native plants and native birds and native insects. By simply just being smarter not only in agricultural communities but also in our our own backyards, so to speak,
2: many of the conversations I've had with past guests and that my listeners will be familiar with from trying to do ecological and regenerative design is conversations about that idea of getting rid of the lawn and making changes to the way that we live our lives in society so that we can create habitat and provide benefits for other creatures beyond just ourselves. I know that work's being done and we'll continue to do our best, but what are some of the other things that you would recommend for folks to try to create a more hospitable place for our bees?
1: That's a really good question. And so the first thing I always say is think about becoming a beekeeper because beekeeping is actually the most relaxing thing you can ever do because you have to get into the zen of beekeeping. If you're not relaxed, the bees will let you know you're also connected with this amazing superorganism. I mean, on a beautiful sunny day, you can open a colony without any protection, just your smoker. You open that colony and there's 40,000 insects working together collectively. They're making this, you know, glorious liquid gold. As a beekeeper, you have to become very attuned to your natural environment. You have to know what's blooming and when it's blooming. And it's just the most amazing experience to see how these organisms live. So. Think about becoming a beekeeper and by becoming a beekeeper, I think you also become very aware of your environment and become an advocate for it, which I think is a great thing. And as a beekeeper, I think that there are many different ways of keeping bees. I mean, we have a saying, you get five beekeepers together, you'll get seven opinion and six are right. And so there's lots of good ways of keeping bees. And certainly there are ways of, of controlling varroa mites with less harmful products. Some products are registered as organic use like formic acid, for instance, and so there's those options. The other thing you can do is I realize that beekeeping isn't for everybody, but you can buy local honey, and by buying local honey, local honey is the most ethical sweetener in the fact that it takes the least amount of carbon to get that sweetener to your table, and so replacing sugar, refined sugar in our diets and and replacing that with honey is a very positive step forward, both for the beekeeping industry because you're supporting them, but also it has some real direct benefits to the environment. And then I think making habitat for bees, and we've already touched about, you know, the pollinator gardens, and making sure that we're not using agricultural chemicals in our backyards or in a, in our urban environments. The fact is, is that backyard gardeners use many times more pesticides per acre than farmers do, and a lot of this is done just on pure ornamentals, which doesn't make any sense at all. And there was a case of thousands, I think about 50,000 or more bumblebees dying feeding on tilia trees in Oregon this summer. And those trees were sprayed not for any human safety or food safety concerns. They were simply sprayed because people did not want aphids to secrete on their cars in the parking lot. So again, not using pesticides. Unless we're really sure we know why we really need them, I think is an important part of the solution. We can also provide a lot of habitat, not only just in the food, but there's these native bees. So providing, you know, native bee houses that in wood or soil that doesn't have any growing on it, like sandy soil on the southern face can attract mining bees. So there's a whole bunch of different things we can do, I think, to support bees, both honeybees and the native bees
2: one of the aphorisms that I've heard before, the, the solution to pollution is dilution, that if we're providing a chemical-free backyard habitat, that if the bees that are foraging in our agricultural areas are also coming into our own yard, that that decreases the amount of the sublethal pesticides that are then being taken back in the pollen to the hive. And I'm wondering what kind of an impact that might have.
1: I think that's a really good point, and it's one that the beekeepers certainly keep quoting to each other, and that's one of the reasons they're feeding their colonies like they've never fed them before. They're feeding a lot of protein diet and they're feeding them a lot of carbohydrate sources in order to dilute agricultural pesticide exposure. I think it's, it's absolutely true. Not only are we providing healthy food to keep sure we have healthy bees, but we might be helping some bees that have had other exposures. Again, though that's sort of anecdotal, but I think, I think there's a lot of wisdom there.
2: You've taken us through so many different topics on this subject. Before we draw this to a close, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation for the listeners?
1: I guess I would just reiterate what I said before. Really think about becoming a beekeeping. It's a great community to be part of. Buying local honey, I think, is a real positive thing. And making, and it sounds like your listeners are doing that already, is, is making sure that we are making wildlife habitat, including pollinator habitat, to support bees, both native and, and honeybee.
0: And that was Dr. Dennis Van Engelsdorp. You can find out more about his work by watching the TED Talk linked in the show notes, A Plea for Bees. There you will also find information on what we can do to create pollinator habitat and more research into what is harming bees. In addition to those resources, I've also included a link to my interview with Owen Wormser on Turning Lawns into Meadows. So you have more tools to get rid of grass, tear up the lawn, and create space for the insects of the world. Listening to this conversation with fresh ears, I still enjoy the precise and technical conversation that I had with Dennis regarding the research and issues surrounding bees, and that what we talked about still remains accessible. For all of his work and research, Dennis clearly communicates what is happening so we can understand what to do. In order to take action, while allowing his personal love and passion for bees to come through. As Dennis described the co-evolution of flowers and pollinators, I was reminded of the beauty of nature, and why I personally love permaculture, and remain hopeful in a world that feels ever more chaotic, and that if each of us can care for our little space, we can build a better world that includes habitat for pollinators and the other-than-human life that also call this world home. Would you be interested in a live stream about creating a permaculture-based pollinator garden? Let me know about that or any other topics to cover in an upcoming broadcast by leaving a comment in the show notes or getting in touch. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com, Text or WhatsApp plus 1-717-827-6266 Or you can drop something in the mail. My new mailing address is Scott Mann. Permaneo Group, LLC, 1390 Chainbridge Road, McLean, Virginia, 22101. Until the next time, spend each day caring for our pollinators while taking care of earth, yourself, and each other.